0: Today's scripture reading is from Luke 16 1 31. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me from their, into their homes. So, he, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in t- dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by, me- by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he would hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would, not, who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they, would, they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Hannah, for making that summary and for teaching our children from uh, the perspective of a parent, that is so precious. Um, good morning, GBC. Um, my name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the elders here. You probably know my wife, Kyoko, who is standing at the back, and Kazumi, who is saying Papa right now. It's my pleasure to be uh, teaching to you from Luke today. Thank you, Tiffany, for reading that very long passage. Um, and I Really appreciate you doing that, t- just taking us through that. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you kindly open it to Luke chapter 16, for, from verse uh, 1 to 31? Um, if you like to have an outline for the text today, um, the outline is the, today's text is split into three sections. We will talk about one God the faithful management of resources entrusted. We hear about the one lawgiver, laws that endure, that are not to be altered. We also hear of this one decision from God, the firm judgment, but also the sufficient warning that is given us in this text today. This text starts with um, Jesus addressing his disciples and I know that if you have been following us through Advent, we've been through series in Isaiah, and today we are back actually in Luke. It's, it's like we are time traveling back to our series that we've been slowly working through. And if you remember in chapter 9, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, and he is on his journey to Jerusalem, preparing himself. He has committed himself to go to the cross. And today's passage starts with him addressing the disciples. Along the way, he has been um, teaching and preaching and talking to various people, some of which the Pharisees, some of which are his own disciples, some of which are just people in the towns and cities. Um, Next slide, please. Uh, And the next and today's passage opens with him addressing his disciples, um, and he, 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 he speaks to them, his very closest of followers. In this parable, we learn of this master that confronts his um, manager, right? He, he immediately this unfolds in a very serious way. What is this that I hear about you? He confronts him for how he has wasted his resources. And essentially, this mishandling leads to him being fired. He is asked to turn in his accounts and to leave. But I think it's important for us today to understand that the manager in the day of, of Jesus is, is actually a steward that is in charge of his master's estate. He is one that is well-trusted with the chief responsibility of managing and distributing the household goods. The manager also typically acts as an agent for his master, having full authority to transact business on behalf of his master. So though we are not told exactly what the manager did, we know that wasting the master's resources is not just an accidental mismanagement, but it is an intentional squandering, it is a core responsibility that was not carried out. Instead of multiplying his master's resources, which was his role, he was wasting it away and presumably on himself. We hear that um, the manager doesn't make any sort of defense for himself. He is clearly guilty as charged, and and as, as we see when the master fires him, He makes no attempt to defend himself, but what we are given a glimpse of is how he turns within, and he has this monologue about what he is to do. There is no struggle, there is no internal conflict, there is no remorse with what he does. But what he does is immediately think about what he is to do next. And his guiding purpose in what he, what he thinks to himself is there in the board, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. His guiding purpose is to think ahead and to build strategic alliances such that he would have as many options as he could for a shelter over his head after being let go from his current employer. It is Peculiar to me, I don't know why, you know, the the the, the master doesn't release this uh, manager right away. Um, but but what we see in the next text is, I'm losing, I'm missing a slide. But um, what what we see in 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 the next uh, passage is that this manager has a, a moment. Of, of time, between him being out on the streets, totally uh, losing his reputation, having no shelter under his head, having no master and no name for him to carry. Between these moments, he comes up with a plan. And what he does is he summons his master's debtors one by one so presumably all of them, um, and what he does is he asks them to come and let him know of the amount that he is, that, that they are um, indebted to him. What we see is the master asking, the, the manager asking these, these debtors, how much do you owe? What he's essentially doing is he's he is taking off um, the the amount of of, um, the the interest that has been charged on top according to to market rate. Uh, So what you see for oil and the next commodity that you see there um, for wheat, he is reducing according to to market rate. But I think what is important to understand for us is that in in the time of, of in Jesus' day, well, For for the Israelites, it is actually illegal to charge interest to a fellow Jew. So, what is common business practice was to actually include the interest into the loan itself. So, as he is coming to, he is uh, summoning and calling his debtor, his master's debtors, he is releasing that amount of, of interest that was previously added. But we also get a sense of, of how sneaky he is. Through that word, quickly. Quickly s- write, sit down and write, write this. It wasn't something that clearly the master would approve of. We know that surely. But, but do you see the genius in what he is doing here? In the split moment between being on the streets and having nothing and no reputation, he turns this moment into one where he converts his master's debtors into his debtors. Could I have the next slide, please? In this kind of surprise to the disciples, and indeed to us as well as we read this, the master commends his dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And this word, the same word is used also in Matthew 25 verse 2 as wise. It is important to keep in mind that this commendation is not a nod of approval to everything that the manager has done, but it is very specifically regarding the manager's decisiveness and foresight in acting to prepare for the future. Do you see the audacity in his act, a leaping into action to seize the moment and convert this opportunity into success. There is wisdom in looking towards the future and preparing for it with the limited resources that are available. But as a a fellow Christian, as we read this, the most stinging verse for me, Jesus says, or the master actually quips, the sons of this world, of this age, often show more concern and skill in taking care of their earthly well-being than do the sons of light, or the believers, in taking care of eternal matters. Jesus is saying that the shrewdness required for my kingdom is nothing less than the shrewdness required in in the criminal world. If they can use every asset that they have for their purposes, then why can't you use every asset for my kingdom purposes? Next slide, please. The kingdom purposes, Jesus clarifies in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. There is a clear purpose that Jesus focuses on. It is for, him, for His disciples to make friends for themselves through the general, generous use of wealth and possessions for the care and well-being of others. I think it's important to also note that righteous wealth, friends, do not trip up on that, but that actually is just rendered as money, as our earthly money that we earn and that we use. Um, but here, we see through, through Jesus' um, kind of urging of them, His view of money. We see how we are that, that money is seen and is, is warned to us that will fail. It, it, isn't, it isn't an if, but it is a when. It will fail you in one way or another if you put your entire hope and trust in it. Money won't be able to buy you happiness. Even with all the wealth in the world, you will not be able to purchase Salvation. In the, in the life to come, we also see money through Jesus' lens as a radical instrument for building eternal friendships upon the firm foundation of, of, of the gospel. This is, this is different because Jesus gives us a view of money that is centered around the building up of people. And to what end? To the end goal of knowing that we are, they are growing, mature in Christ, all the way into the future, into eternity with Christ. This is radical because it is different from how the world sees money. But friends, this isn't reckless, ill-considered, and irresponsible use. If this stretches all the way into eternity, How can this be reckless? I don't know how you are feeling this morning about I don't know what this passage is saying to you about how you use your money and how you use your resources. What is God speaking to you How do we see money and possessions? Is God truly the master of our possessions? And is it used to win over souls for the kingdom? Not just by a clinical, distanced, programmed giving. I know my offerings are done through an internet web app. But I get a sense through this text that that we are called to have genuine, personal, selfless giving. What is God speaking to you this morning, the very last Sunday of 2020, about people in your life that do not yet call God their Lord and Savior? Maybe it is that coffee shop uncle or auntie that you always go to to buy your chicken rice, Maybe it's that colleague that you've been trying to keep separate from your church life this whole time. What is God saying about how you are to use your wealth and your possessions in relation to them? Friends, it has not been an easy year. I think as I was scrolling through Instagram, I think that's been the opening sentence to everyone's Christmas post. For those of you that are weary of serving, for those of you that are weary of giving, weary of loving, know this that what in our lifetime can have eternal impact? Friends, it is souls saved from sin and death by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is what will last. Our home, our work, our achievements, they will not last. We will not be taking that with us when we meet our Savior, but eternal friends, we will be greeting each other in eternity to lift our voices in praise of the one true God. So, friends, as we press on together, know that this is what Jesus calls us to do. Thinking and acting this way is being faithful to God. If you feel that you have no possessions and no wealth, this passage of one who is faithful with little speaks directly to you. With what little we have, thinking shrewdly about how we can win friends for the gospel, for the kingdom, is being faithful to God. In fact, thinking this way is what pleases God. For His people to subject wealth and possessions under His rule and reign, we have one God, and our wealth is used for His kingdom. Our passage takes us into an interesting segue into in verse 14 and 18. Um, we have a natural response. So as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, I think the Pharisees are probably at an earshot away, and having overheard Jesus' conversations, they have a very uh, real reaction to it, what they, what they, how they react is to ridicule him. In our previous chapters, we we hear of different responses from the Pharisees. Um, It starts with murmuring, right, just quietly stewing there. Um, But in, in this passage, it is an outright speaking against. It is ridiculing what Jesus has just said about what they are to do with money. And I think it is incredibly um, this speaks to us in, in, in a few ways but I think there are many responses that we can have to Jesus and what he says we can outrightly ridicule him like the Pharisees do and they do so because they know what Jesus is asking of them they do so because they know that he is asking of their all to be thinking with everything that they have, and to think shrewdly and, and use your, not just you know, give once every month 10%, but to think shrewdly with everything that you, you have. We hear that, that they, they respond this way because they actually know what Jesus is asking of them. But friends, I, I, I think there is a word for us today as well, that thinking this way is grappling with the words of Jesus. It is struggling and, and listening and, and having it work in our hearts. And I urge you today to respond to Jesus' words. But if you do, if you, whatever you do, do not ignore it. Do not... Treat it as unimportant words that you can just sit on. Grapple with God's words. Struggle with them if you have to. But friends, do not, do not ignore His words. In our next, uh, next slide, please. In our next um, passage in in the next verse. Um, what we hear of is Jesus speaking to uh, speaking of the two time periods, the time of the Law and the Prophets, which which we hear uh, we know uh, is is the Pentateuch and also the, the the books of the Prophets, which is what the the, 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 the which is the Scriptures that the Old uh, Testament uh, and and what what they they, they have. Uh, in Jesus' day as he's speaking to the Pharisees. Um, he, there, there is another time period that is also the kingdom of God that is heralded by John the Baptist as he came and as he spoke of the coming Messiah. This very new kingdom of God now is Jesus describes as people, everyone forcing their way into it. There is a sense of of urgency, there is a sense of, of zeal uh, to respond and to force their way. Reminds me of Caleb's, where as he taught us about the narrow gate, forcing their way through this narrow gate into the kingdom, responding to it while the Pharisees were quibbling over what Jesus is saying. But what is what stands out, I guess, in, in verse 17 as he's saying that these two time frames that you can think of, the time of the law and the prophets, and now this time of the kingdom of God, even though it is here, even though people are responding to it, it doesn't mean that the old is then done away with. But the law, what he says is, the the law will not, not even one dot of the law will become void. Aham. but what is he really pointing to here? I think he's talking about how the reign of, of his kingdom does not diminish the truthfulness and the relevance of the law and the prophets. The promises recorded by the prophets, we just went through Isaiah, reading of the promised, how the, the, the suffering servant will, will, is the Messiah and will come and save. That will not be diminished, that will not be taken away. The moral principles of the law, the eternal truths, all remain in force. Jesus is saying, do not presume to think that it is permissible to trivialize the law's words, to alter it, to dismiss it at all. Next slide, please. And he drops this very interesting passage or teaching on the laws of divorce. He previously challenged the way that they deal with their wealth, and now he takes a step even closer to talk about the more intimate topic of their married lives. This isn't Jesus' exhaustive teaching on marriage. There are other passages that talk about um, uh, on on divorce, sorry, but there are other passages in in Matthew that give a fuller account um, and that make clear that divorce was permitted in cases where one spouse was guilty of adultery. We know that, but what is this passage today talking about here? The Pharisees abused this law, actually, and they made it very easy to divorce one's wife, and for almost no cause. If they didn't like the cooking that she prepared, or even if they saw someone else that they fancied, they had altered God's law to make that permissible. They were changing God's laws on divorce to suit their sinful desires and still appear righteous on the outside. As they were doing this, what does this show? A low view of God's laws that they thought they could change however they liked, without consequences. By doing so, they were writing their own laws and elevating themselves as God. Um, If you could hit next, please. Um, So this is my daughter. Um, Sorry, just to inject some fun. Um, um, And there was one day where she was playing with um, a young playmate, a friend, um, and we asked her, how, how was your day today, and, and how was it playing with, with this new, new friend? So she holds her hand over her chest, and she says, scared, scared, scared. So we were like, oh, okay, uh, why? Why, why do you say scared? And then she holds her hand, finger, to her eye, and she says, poke, eye, poke, eye. So apparently her playmate, in her playmate's childish enthusiasm walked up right into her face, um, and in trying to show love and affection, put her finger in Kazumi's eye. Um, So she was scared. Um, And we had to take this opportunity to also teach her that that's not the right way to use a finger, and we don't normally put fingers in eyes. Indeed, a finger was not meant to poke eyes. It was made so we could point at things, and show people the way, but using it to poke eyes is not what it was meant for. Um, Likewise, the law given was not meant for us to alter. Friends, it was not meant for us to change according to what suits us. It was instead to channel God's people towards a need for a savior. Jesus is reminding them that there can only be one Lawgiver, you can't be lawgivers. And the law was given perfectly such that not even one smallest dot from the smallest alphabet in the law can be removed. This law is given to reveal the holy character of God such that as sinful people might come to know Him as He truly is and realize their sinful nature and need for a Savior. How do we, friends, view Scripture today? Are we tired, weary of it? Are we burdened, scared to wield it, to hold it out? I hope that this passage today gives you confidence in God's Word to know that not even one dot from the law will be removed. That As that one lawgiver, God, gave this law, it was perfect. And even with Christ coming on the scene with the new kingdom, this law still stands. I hope you can have confidence in God's Word as you read it for your personal life. I hope you have a love for God, knowing that in His foresight, He gave His perfect Word to us to hold, to cherish, to live by, to share with others. Thanks, Projection team. You can actually go through the next two clicks. Yeah, just more pictures of Kazumi pointing at things. Um, And the next slide, please. And so we reach our final section for today that talks about one decision from God, His firm judgment, but yet also giving us sufficient warning. To save us some time, I've put up a table of what Verse 19 and 23 are actually talking about. It is a contrast of lifestyles between these two men, the rich man and Lazarus. By the way, Lazarus is probably, I think, the only character given a name in Jesus' parable, and it means Jesus helps, right? God helps. Um, and as we go through the table, if you if you sense a sense, uh, if you sense some irony in that. Um, you're not wrong. Um, it is quite ironic. But let's, let's just slowly look through this. In both the men's dress, in their dining, in how they, where they live, in their lodging, and ultimately in their death. The rich man in verse 19, dress like a king, luxuriously in purple and in fine linen, he is clothed, in fact he is a Jew, but he is clothed quite like a Roman. Um, and we, we see this contrast in Lazarus, clothed, it doesn't tell you what he's clothed in, but he's covered in sores, he's clothed in sores. This speaks not just of his poverty, but also his, his condition, the extent of it verse 19 and 21, in How They Dine, the rich man feasts sumptuously every day. It describes the access that he indulges in, right? Every day. But also how hard he drives his servants. Every day means that he would have to have his servants working even on Sabbath, giving them no rest. And Lazarus, it didn't tell you how he... Eight. Thanks for zooming in. <laughs> Thank you, AV team. But it tells you what he desired. It tells you that he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. It was his aim high. It was his wish and his dream. But there was no indication that the rich man actually gave him anything in this parable. How they lived. Well, the rich man, in verse Uh, 22, I believe, 20, lived in a gated property, right? He had his property with his gate, meaning he has things inside to protect. And in verse 21, Lazarus, where does he live? Lives at the rich man's gate, exposed to the unclean wild dogs that ran wild in the streets. In verse 22, how they died, we see that the rich man had a proper burial, probably surrounded by friends and family, and and Lazarus, an unremarkable death. But in this last two verses of this section, the rich man died, even though with a proper burial, ended up in torment in Hades, as, as Hannah very well summarized for us in the beginning, for the children. And Lazarus, either although an unremarkable death, was taken to Abraham's side, into the fellowship of other believers in heaven. The rich man here, if we can go to the next slide, please, thank you, did not die because he, he did not miss salvation, sorry, because he was not generous enough with his money or that he was inherently rich and that was somehow wrong. That's, that's not the teaching. But as a Jew, the rich man knew the Ten Commandments and he knew that the last six instructed him on how he ought to relate to people. Jesus sums this up as, love your neighbors as yourself. He would have understood this. He would have understood the call for and the rightness for compassion from the Ten Commandments, but he simply did not take the commandments seriously. He did not believe the Scriptures. The true reason for his damnation was his disregard for God's Word and his rejection of the Lord. Going past his front gate day in and day out, he would have come into contact with his needy, impoverished man laying at his gate. He knew Lazarus was there, but not once did he stop and show compassion. And in verse 24, we hear him call out as he is in Hades Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. The rich man seeks mercy even though he gave no mercy. And even in this state in hell, he is still unchanged in his disposition towards Lazarus. Lazarus is still seen as the poor man at my gate that I can call to do whatever I want. There is also no sense of remorse. There is no sense of repentance. despite being confronted from his wrongs, there was no remorse. I guess this gives us a bit of a teaching about, about hell and how there is the unrepented in hell are still unrepentant. Um, and that gives us some urgency here as his people to think of those in our midst that are heading that way because they do not know him. Just a passing thought. In the the following, uh, in the next slide, um, yeah, in the next slide, um, Abraham responds to him. In in this final contrast of, of, the great contrast of lifestyles, we have a great reversal of endings, right? Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. There is a reversal. But I think it is important to note that the, reverse, the teaching is not that there will be an automatic reversal of roles in heaven, but rather that God's judgment will be equitable, and it will be impartial, For it is held by the Pharisees of the day that physical wealth was a sign of approval from God. Jesus is making the point that even extreme wealth cannot save one from God's judgment, highlighting His impartial judgment that gives to each man what they truly deserve according to laws that He already clearly laid out. We also learn from the irreversible nature of God's judgment described by Abraham that there is a chasm, we learn that his his judgment is impartial, we also learn that there is a chasm that has been fixed, that none may cross, that once that decision has been made, it has been made and judged well, and there is no turning back on it, it is an irreversible judgment. So these two natures of judgment are something that can be quite weigh down on us, and, and they are very final in a way that we know that, that, that it cannot be reversed. But I don't know how this speaks to you today, um, but what we hear from, from the rich man in his response in the next slide is that he turns to pleading and begging Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers to warn them of this same fate that he himself is in. Abraham's response is that the rich man's brothers having all that they need is in order to be warned, they actually have all that they need in order to be warned of hell. Um, If the AV team can go on to the next slide, please that they have all that they need. And what is it that they have? They have Moses and the prophets, the which is the Old Testament and the Lord. If they were to pay attention to that, they would heed the Scripture's teachings regarding mercy. They would see that they were to love their neighbors as themselves. They would see that they were helpless in their sin and turn to God for mercy If they had read Moses and the prophets, they would begin to glimpse the need for a Messiah upon whom they could cast their souls. Abraham is telling the rich man that this scripture is sufficient to overcome unbelief. No amount of evidence will ever turn unbelief into faith, but the revealed word of God has power to do so. Friends, there is one more decision that was made at the very beginning of time. That at the right time, there would be one who would be sent to fulfill the law which no one can fully fulfill. And from that, turn God's righteous wrath against sin onto Himself his death, through His death on the cross. And this one decision made by God, was to send His Son, Jesus Christ. What does Jesus Himself do when in the last chapter of Luke, on the road to Emmaus, He came across two downtrodden disciples, saddened that Christ had been dead for three days. What does He do? In the next slide, on the road to Emmaus, he said, and he, 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 as he comes across the disciples, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. Friends, as we hear Abraham reminding the rich man that Moses and the prophets are enough. What does Jesus do to two downtrodden disciples? He reminds them that he is revealed in Moses and all the prophets. And he shows them how he is prophesied, pointed to through his scripture and that it all points to him and what he had to do on the cross. Indeed, if the rich man's five brothers would pay attention to God's word, they would need nothing else. They would need nothing else because it testifies to Jesus Christ himself. The coming Messiah that is ushered, that is ushering in the kingdom of God. May we as his people this morning press on. As we press on, may we be faithful in managing our resources and trusted to us for eternal friendships. May we love God's law, not change God's law. And may we face the coming judgment sober-minded and alert, holding fast to God's word that is revealed to us. Friends, let us go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning for speaking to us through your word. Though difficult a passage it is, though frail and imperfect instruments we are, Lord, you still speak to us, and you make yourself known and you make your desires known. Lord, we pray that as we meditate on your word and its implications on our lives, that Lord, you would humble us. Lord, that you would soften our hearts to your teaching. Lord, may you give us a love for you, a love for your people, that we might act, that we might pick up your urging and to shape our lives differently in the way that we see our possessions and our wealth, in the, in the way that we come across passages and, and, and your law that we find difficult to hold. Lord, as we are wearied, give us confidence in your word that we might hold fast to it. Lord, as we End this year, help us to end it well, knowing that you are God that has revealed yourself to us and given us sufficient warning and everything that we need in your scripture to be more and more like you. Lord, we submit these things and what we've learned and heard to you and pray that you would use it for your glory. In Jesus' name I ask and pray. Amen.